Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The day started with some tweets from President Trump saying that he planned to re-implement some tariffs on Argentina and Brazil having to do with steel as a result of their devaluing their currencies. He also, though, said uh, that China was on board with getting some sort of trade deal done. But if they didn't do it, that he would escalate tariffs to try to make sense of all of these crosswinds. Damien Sassauer joining us now, Chief Emerging Markets Credit credit Strategist for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Brendan Murray, the trade czar for Bloomberg. So let's head to our trade czar first, Brendan. Lay out the land for us in terms of trade headlines this morning. Yeah, so there was a lot to unpack this morning. Uh, and at about 6 a.m. Washington time, the president tweeted uh, this stuff about Brazil and, and Argentina and reinstating the steel and, and aluminum tariffs, which had been uh, sort of uh, lifted uh, a little over a year ago uh, to those two countries. And his justification was that they were, uh, they, as he said, uh, there were massive devaluations of those currencies, which is not good for American farmers. So he said he's restoring those uh, Tariffs on those metals immediately, and uh, and and the and the market fallout from that was uh, you know that U.S. steel companies shares rose and Brazilian steelmakers shares declined, and so it was a uh, it was another uh, even by Trump standards a uh, surprise for for everyone this morning. So, Damien, let's focus on some of those emerging markets, um, Argentina and Brazil. What does this news mean for those countries and? just kind of investments in those uh, economies. Well, it's still very gray in terms of exactly what he's announced here. But I mean, Paul, you make a good point. I mean, this is actually the first time that Trump has actually um, initiated tariffs due to currency manipulation. Go figure, right? This is actually the first time he's done it. So, you know, let's take that for what it's worth. But really... You know, he didn't elaborate on the level of the tax. I mean, if we just look backwards, yeah, okay, we can assume maybe a 25% tariff on steel, another 10% on aluminium, because that's what we had earlier this year. But look, I mean, this hurts U.S. steelmakers who are relying on Brazilian um, exporters for their components anyway. So it's really kind of difficult to gauge who wins and who loses at this point, especially when this is done in lieu of the ongoing China-U.S. trade discussions. And to me, it just seems like a signal he's trying to send to China more than anything else. Do you think that he's going to re-implement these tariffs? I mean, is this basically a done deal? Well, Wilbur Ross was just on the tape saying December 15th is the deadline. He's reaffirmed that. So, I mean, it's it's anyone's guess as to how serious Trump is. But, you know, I mean, when, when Wilbur Ross does kind of, you know, draw, draw that line in the sand, uh, I think a lot of uh, investors, myself included, are, are sure to take note of it. So, Brendan, give us a sense of this on again, off again, you know, just the, the tweet of the day. Is there a sense that a phase one deal is still something that both sides can get to? maybe at or near this December 15th date? Let me just go back to the steel and aluminum tariffs first. There is a question about this threat that he uh, he, he he issued today about whether it's even legal that he can do that. So um, you know, once 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 the experts figure that out, um, you know, then then I think we can assess what the damage might be. As far as the China tariffs, 
Um, we've been hearing for weeks now that this that this thing was imminent, that, uh, you know, they're in the final stages. And we've uh, and the latest uh, we get is that they're not quite there yet. So and they're still haggling over uh, the same basic things that they were haggling over six months ago. So uh, the, the longer time drags out here and the closer we get to December 15th, we're now, you know, less than two weeks from there. Uh, you know, the more I think investors are going to worry that, you know, this this isn't coming together and we are going to get the tariffs that the president threatened. You know, he he issued another tweet today, which kind of went under the radar screen that said, uh, you know, the stock market is up 21 percent since, uh, you know, March 2018 when I first started the tariffs, um, you know. And, and so you wonder what he's kind of laying the groundwork for here. Is it bad news or good news? Uh, you know, you can make a case for either one, really. Take me in. Are Argentina and Brazil manipulating their currencies? (laughs) Well, let's start with Argentina. The answer there is assuredly no, because the currency is so illiquid. It's so it's capital constrained now after the you know everything that's gone on in the country. I mean, they've they've lost complete control of it. I mean, I, I wouldn't I would go so far as to argue that the Argentine peso isn't worth the, the paper it's written on, right? I mean, that's what most investors think. No offshore overseas institutional investor has the risk tolerance to move into peso-denominated assets at this point in time, in my opinion. Brazil's a different story. And Brazil, I mean, look, you got to be clear here. When when the real kind of moved through that 420 threshold, which we saw just a few weeks ago, you know, that was a pretty big move. I don't think they wanted that to happen. In fact, if you just look at some of their FX swap activity and some of the things that they do to sort of manage the, the volatility around around dollar real, you know, they were pretty mindful. They kept defending that 420 level. So the fact that it went through it, I think, I don't think it has much to do with the fact that they were allowing it to depreciate. I think it was more the markets pushing back. And so right now the real is off over 8% year to date. Um, I think it's a good time to probably start looking at uh, local denominated debt in Brazil. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely attractive at these levels receiving in the front end. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and Brendan Murray, uh, Bloomberg Trade Reporter, joining us from the London. Damien here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you both for that. Uh, those comments on what has been a busy day uh, on the trade front tariffs. Uh, Trump, President Trump reinstating some tariffs uh, on Brazil uh, and Argentina, uh, while still making some broadly positive comments about the China trade negotiations that uh, uh, China wants a deal and the U.S. wants the right deal. So we will continue to follow that story. Well, for quite a long time, global interest rates have been at exceptionally low levels, including the U.S. We even have uh, significant developed markets such as Germany and Japan with negative interest rates. Is that a good thing going forward long term for the global economy? Our next guest, I think, can help us answer that. Dr. Brendan Brown, he's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and publisher of the newsletter Monetary Scenarios uh, at the Hudson Institute, based in London, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Dr. Brown, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Just help us put into context this interest rate environment, this easy money environment that we've seen around the world, and again, most notably Germany with negative interest rates in Japan, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the global economy? Well, I would say, first of all, low interest rates and this radical monetary policy has been a good thing for the masters of the central bank's governments. Okay. It saved from a lot of interest rate costs on massive budget deficits or overhang of government debt. And we've been able to do this because the fundamental background for global economy has been disinflationary, falling tendency of prices due to technological change and globalization. 
I would say as far as you and I and general prosperity goes, it, they've been a bad thing. The, in several ways, this low interest rate environment has, has held back prosperity. It's encouraged a lot of malinvestment. It's created a lot of uncertainty about the long-term picture, which has held investment back. It's spurred monopoly power by creating desperation for yield. And what do people like uh, at the moment? It's anything which uh, claims it will have monopoly power in the future. And all these things together uh, have weighed on prosperity. So when you look at the general picture now, I don't believe investment spending or slow growth is a result of the crash 10 years ago. I believe it's a result of cumulative malinvestment and all these forces I'm talking about. What's monetary pessimism? Well, monetary pessimism has many strands. I've talked of several here with monopoly power, the, 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 these radical monetary policies producing low growth and prosperity and weighing on investment. I would say there's two aspects of monetary pessimism, pessimism which have been false. That is, first of all, the belief that all this radical monetary policy will create high inflation soon. That clearly isn't the case in, in our disinflationary environment. And the other aspect of monetary pessimism, which has proved false, has been the belief that it's all going to fizzle out quite soon and we're going to get a crash or recession. There's been a lot of false crash and recession warnings. But so what we I can call that monetary optimism that we haven't? <laughs> you could say that, but I think the dilemma investors and everybody now faces is the central banks and led by the Fed have been administering elixirs to the business cycle now for a long time, making this the longest cyclical expansion on record. But we all know that the elixir is not going to create perpetual life for the business cycle and that eventually there's an end game there. So when I look at Germany, you know, the largest economy in Europe, manufacturing uh, economy, export economy, is it? Talk to us about the negative rate environment there. Why are the rates negative there, and is there what is the scenario for them to turn positive? The negative rates in Germany are a key aspect of a fundamental uh, arrangement or coalition between Germany and the ECB, where Germany keeps uh, keeps rates negative or allows rates to be negative to help bail out Italian banks. Um, but at the same time, that benefits the German export sector. I think it's creating a very treacherous situation in Germany because a lot of the people who are suffering from negative rates at the moment think they're doing okay elsewhere through asset market inflation. But when and that turns around, they'll find out that we didn't do any, any good there and we've also lost in fixed investments. So there's a story out on the Bloomberg today. Peak private equity fears are spreading across the pension world. And it talks about how the fears are growing among the pension community that asset prices in the private equity space have gotten too high. Where do you see the biggest bubbles being formed? Or if you don't want to use the word bubble, excesses uh, being formed as a result of some of these negative rate policies? Well, in terms of a real investment, I think the biggest question of all we face is, has there been over-investment in digitalization and this third industrial revolution? It's a bit like asking the question in the 19th century, was there over-investment in the railroads? And yes, there was. Research that has been done uh, at the University of Chicago by Fogel and Engerman showed that there was overinvestment and the actual prosperity gain was quite small. I think we're probably in something like that with digitalization today. But in terms of the financial um, investments and dangers, I think you've highlighted 
the core of that, which is private equity. So you think private equity is the space that's most inflated at this point? Definitely. And alongside that, you also mentioned insurance companies. You have to think of all these European insurance companies who have been going more and more into risky products to produce returns. And if eventually they are not there on a cumulative basis, there's going to be a lot of disappointment and results among households in Europe. And just real quick, over-investing in the digitalization, does that mean that the Googles and the Apples are overvalued? Well, Googles and Apples are valued on the basis of them having monopoly power into the long run. We know from economic history that monopolies do not generally survive into the long run unless something really has changed here. And so to value these on the basis of perpetual monopoly streams, or in some companies, in the case of monopoly streams still to come, is symptomatic of the general effervescence of financial markets. Fascinating, especially as Amazon uh, attracts all of the attention on this Cyber Monday. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Brennan Brown, senior fellow, uh, he is joining us here, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and publisher of the newsletter Monetary Scenarios. Uh, here in our 1130 studios or interactive broker studios, really interesting to me the idea of comparing tech investment, digitalization investment today to the investment in railroads yep. years and years back, and how, yes, that was revolutionary, but perhaps the amount of money that went in uh, was a little bit more than what people were going to get out. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Sarah Halzek. It is Cyber Monday. It was Black Friday. Let's get a sense of how this is playing out. Sarah covers all things retail. She joins us from the Washington, D.C. Bureau. So, Sarah, we've had a pretty good look at what happened on Black Friday. We're starting to get some data here on some of the cyber trends Monday. What are your takeaways? Sure. So uh, the latest data we have on Cyber Monday is it's off to a strong start as of 9 a.m., uh, 473 million in online sales. And uh, according to Adobe, that puts us on pace for it to achieve uh, the projected $9.4 billion in sales for the day overall. So clearly the big spending hour is still yet to come, um, but a lot of momentum for the industry today. Um, and that sort of tracks with what we saw over the holiday weekend overall, healthy online spending on Thanksgiving and Black Friday as well. Sarah, uh, this has been something everyone has been talking about. In other words, uh, people are shifting to online shopping, and we did get a record amount of sales. But how out of the expectation is this? In other words, what's going to be the takeaway, the surprise from this uh, shopping season? Yeah, one thing that I think is perhaps surprising is there's all this conversation about how Black Friday is dead, that these deals start, you know, as early as November 1st now. And so what's the incentive to get off the block and shop uh, over this past weekend or even on Cyber Monday? And I think what's interesting is that online, uh, Black Friday sales were up 19.6% Cyber Monday over last year. Uh, Cyber Monday sales are expected to be up 18.9%. That will make them two of the fastest growing days of online shopping of the whole holiday season. In other words, in the digital space, Black Friday and Cyber Monday aren't getting less important. They're actually getting more important. More of our spending is concentrating in these big deals events. So it's really critical for retailers to stay in stock today, to not have some website outages, make sure they have the merchandise that customers want. How about for the Gen Z and the millennials? What are we learning about how they are shopping here, bricks and mortar versus uh, e-commerce? 
I think we all have this idea that Generation Z, uh, you know, lives their life with their nose in their phones, and so probably uh, they are going to prefer that channel to in-store shopping. That's not exactly what we see. Uh, in fact, uh, when uh, we looked at data uh, heading into this long holiday, we- uh, long holiday weekend, it was Gen Z shoppers, the ones who are going to stores, were the ones who are most likely to say, I'm going to be doing it with family and friends. I'm going to be doing it in a social, experiential way. I like getting out of the house. I like <laughs> uh, trying trying garments on before I buy them or testing out electronics in person. And so I think that uh, there, there's not a lot of evidence out there to suggest that Gen Z is going to kill the physical store. Uh, they might just continue to, as other generations have, kind of change uh, what we use the store for and how frequently we go to it. Let's throw some statistics out here as we speak with Sarah Halzak, retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Black Friday hit a record $7.4 billion in U.S. online sales. Uh, People buying a lot from their phones. Also, it was the second biggest U.S. online sales day ever behind 2018 Cyber Monday's $7.9 billion. And we see a, a healthy clip today, so perhaps we'll surpass it today. I'm wondering, Sarah, you said that the bulk of the shopping was done in this period at this point. People are concentrating their purchases. How deep are the discounts? In other words, how much are margins compressing for the retailers as they try to lure in shoppers during this period? Yeah, so margins are especially tricky, not just because of the deals, but because as we make this migration to online shopping, we all know we've all come to expect free shipping as table stakes, right? And so that's where a lot of the margin pressure is going to come in for retailers in this holiday season, is that two-day shipping has become the standard, and now Amazon has sort of stepped up our expectations even more by offering one-day shipping on a lot of products. Walmart, too, is offering one-day shipping on a lot of products. And so that's going to be a huge expense for them uh, to shoulder and work through during the season. And Sarah, a lot of these retailers have been warning us that this shopping season would actually be about a week less than last year. How does that kind of impact kind of results? I'm skeptical that it will have a big impact on results, frankly, because as we mentioned earlier, a lot of these deals have been in place since early November. Folks have gotten their shopping started earlier in the month. And we just, if you look uh, historically over time at whether there's a correlation between the years when Thanksgiving falls late uh, and Thanksgiving falls early and whether or not holiday sales overall are strong, we just don't really see a clear correlation there. So I have no doubt that many retailers will trot that out as an excuse when they report their holiday (laughs) Uh, sales results in January or February as a a reason for their challenge. Uh, But I don't think that should have a big impact on how the season shapes up overall. I have to say, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I was reading this column uh, in the New York Times about how Amazon wove itself into the life of an American city. And I did see uh, American Factory, this documentary about what's been going on in a Dayton, Ohio in particular, with a Chinese factory coming in. And it's not so much about trade wars and who is running the factory, but there is a shift away from human expertise toward humans just for now being better or at least more less expensive than the machines, but at some point that will flip. Can you give us a sense of who the big winners and who the big losers are as we see this shift unfold before our eyes? Because basically the data that we're getting out of Black Friday and Cyber Monday is just confirming foot traffic falling in department stores and the focus on how fast you can ship, sort, and do all these things that computers eventually and robots will do. 
Sure. I think the winners and losers are the ones who are, or the winners, I should say, are the ones who are figuring out uh, how to manage both a store portfolio and a digital portfolio. And I think Walmart, Target, and Best Buy are probably clearly in that winner circle. Um, they've made a lot of investments in figuring out how to uh, expand their online assortments, how to not get clobbered on price by Amazon in the digital space, um, and in certain cases, use their stores as an asset. You know, Best Buy says that uh, 40% of its online orders are picked up in stores. Uh, so clearly, uh, consumers like that click and collect model. It's a more profitable model for them. And by figuring out how to steer people to make that choice, uh, they're figuring out how to do online shopping in a more profitable way. And so I suspect those will be the folks that come out as winners from this uh, Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday stretch and from the holiday season overall. About 30 seconds, Sarah. Do we know what people are buying this year? Is it just electronics? So lots of frozen two toys, Elsa certainly uh, having an impact, uh, LOL Surprise, another really popular toy property. And yes, it's always a big weekend for electronics, uh, particularly in the online space, strong sales of Samsung TVs and AirPods uh, were some of the reports we saw coming out of this weekend. Sarah, did you buy lots of frozen two gear? Tons, <laughs> right? You're going to show up on television. I'm going to see her wearing a little Elsa outfit, I'm sure. No, not so much. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm expecting a girl baby, so maybe I should uh, get ahead of the count on that and start buying some Elsa stuff for sure. Congratulations. Congratulations. Very Congratulations. exciting. Awesome. Uh, I, I expect uh, great things. Uh, so, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Sarah Halzak, Bloomberg Opinion retail columnist, joining us from Washington, D.C. Well, ESG investing is becoming a much bigger part of the global institutional uh, investing uh, marketplace. ESG, of course, stands for environment, uh, sustainability, and governance. In fact, today, Bloomberg and our good friends at Nuveen are co-sponsoring a global responsible investing conference here at the Bloomberg headquarters in New York. Uh, to get a sense of what this means for investor investors, we welcome our next guest, Steve Libertor, lead fixed income ESG portfolio manager at Nuveen. He's based in Charlotte, North Carolina, but he joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Steve, thanks so much for joining us again. You manage $10 billion in core bond strategies uh, at uh, TIAA Craft Part and Nuveen. How do you as a portfolio manager um, really integrate ESG aspects into your analysis? Sure. Paul, thanks for having me. Um, I think there's really two different ways that we look at it. Um, ESG is, is really an application of trying to identify the best operated and managed issuers um, in the market. And it's not a way of trying to create value definitions or value judgments. You know, we're not saying don't invest in an oil and gas issuer. What we're saying is if you're going to invest in an oil and gas issuer, what you want to look for are those issuers that have a good track record as far as taking care of the environment. You know, you don't want to invest with someone who consistently has spills or continually is being fined because what they're doing is putting at risk their ability to generate free cash flow in the future, which obviously as, a, as an unsecured creditor, that's really what you're focused on getting repayment from. So we, we look at those issuers that we feel are, are, are ESG leaders and we feel are therefore are the best operated and managed and less likely to blow up over time. And we combine that with a view on impact investing where we're looking for very specific um, proceed utilization that is direct and measurable. So think of things like the easy ones are solar and wind farms, for example, but it's much broader than that where we look at different types of things, whether it be affordable housing issues or attempting to help with education opportunities, things of that nature that allow our investors to have a direct and measurable exposure to securities that generate some type of um, uh, impact 
in areas that they care about. We've read about an increasing number of investors inquiring about ESG strategies, but when you look at the actual flows, it still is a fraction of the overall money. I'm wondering what you're seeing on that front. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think really what it is, is there's a couple of things there. I think when when you look at ESG investing, it's still fairly nascent when you really think about it. Um, you know, It's been going on in the equity market for a much longer period of time than it certainly has in fixed. But what we're starting to see is the asset management industry as a whole had not been good at being able to create product that performed well relative to common benchmarks or to peer groups. Um, and that's really due to how ESG was applied historically, which is really more of an exclusionary screen perspective. You were good or you were bad and that was it. You wouldn't invest in any oil and gas name. So when oil and gas rallied, your portfolio was structurally deficient. You couldn't perform well. Um, now, when you look at ESG application, it's really more of a best of industry class. You're looking to invest in issuers, not necessarily excluding them solely. So when you do that, you can build a broadly diversified portfolio. And now you're seeing product that is able to perform well against common benchmarks and against peer groups. So I think it makes investors more comfortable that they can invest in this way without dealing with the main the main misperception in the space, which is you sacrifice performance. I want to talk about the data behind ESG yep. investing, because I know a lot of people that we've spoken to about ESG investing say, you know, that there's not that great data out there. Like, you know, it's just I can't just rely on the income statement balance sheet. Mm -hmm. I need other data to help me figure this out. Now, on the Bloomberg terminal, on the FA function, which is one of our most widely used functions, there is a tab right there on the FA function for ESG. So, you know, it's important to Bloomberg. We're collecting that data. What is your sense of kind of where the data is today to allow you to really use uh, your analytical skills to factor it into your decision? Yeah, it's really at this point in time, a, a little bit all over the place. There, there are certainly getting better over time and it, and it gets better on a daily basis. Um, there are certainly efforts outstanding at the moment to try to, to um, provide centralized data that is common for all issuers to provide. The one challenge, of course, within ESG data for an issuer is that it's different for all of them. You know, that environmental issues may not apply as much to a technology company's let's say, an oil and gas issuer. So the key is, is really finding those factors that are material for your particular sector and being able to report on those. The really good thing is that issuers have become very much focused in, on this particular topic and willing to try to work with investors um, when we engage with them to try to improve their overall quality of data and provide a wider range of data that allows an investor to utilize it in a way to build a portfolio. There's a structural challenge, too, when you talk about ESG, particularly uh, environmental and social, and that is that the universe of public equities is shrinking. And a lot of people who are looking to have an impact are looking to alternative methods that are less tested, smaller investments, more idiosyncratic. How do you see the, the market evolving uh, based on that challenge? No, that's a great point. And, and that's why I really think that people are now becoming more comfortable with the application of ESG and impact in public fixed income because we have such a wider array of investment opportunities. We're not looking for issuers. We don't need a public issuer you know, in the fixed income market, but how we can utilize that is we can get issuance at a sector at a subsector level or, or a subsidiary level for a corporate. But these are companies that already are issuing bonds in the public markets, right? I mean, this isn't necessarily uh, a company that's trying to put toilets in uh, in villages in in you know pick your country, right? It depends. Actually, from a corporate perspective, that is correct. But where we would have issues like that, for
for example, you just described would be with super sovereign issuers or NGOs that come to the market. Um, we've done things from, you know, looked at deals where we provided uh, vaccination financing um, all the way through looking at transactions that provided solar cooktops to sub-Saharan African families. So there is, because I think the nature of the fixed income market is so, so much more diverse and, and wider that you have the opportunity to look at NGOs, super sovereigns, agency securities, municipalities, and structured securities to find a growing opportunity set. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Steve uh, Liberator uh, joining us here, lead fixed income ESG portfolio manager with Nuveen, uh, joining us in our interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.